All right, well, thanks for joining us online. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different in that we're not going to, um, to jump into the next Truth for Life questions. The kids are still on the last question we covered, um, and so I figured we'd do something a little bit different to let them catch up with us where we are. And then uh, just a reminder, next week there's not going to be the regular service because we'll have, be having vacation Bible school, uh, so just make note of that. But if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Jude, uh, the book of Jude, and uh, um, there's only one chapter in Jude. Um, uh, I particularly chose Jude because we had looked at it uh, several Sundays ago in our scripture reading time. Jude and Second Peter, uh, which we've been preaching through on Sunday mornings, share uh, a lot of similarities, um, so much so that there are thoughts that uh, either Jude depended upon Peter or Peter depended upon Jude, and, and oftentimes those type of um, conjectures are brought up by people who seek to, um, seek to undermine the authority and the veracity of God's word. Um, I think the, the easiest way to explain for these similarities that we have, sometimes word-for-word -word similarities, is that we know that the ultimate author of Scripture who wrote, the, the ultimate author of Jude and the ultimate author of Second Peter is the same person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised that he says the same things to his people, uh, and particularly those facing different, um, different contexts. And so... Jude is a letter that is written to, as we can see in verse 1, um, to those who are called, beloved in God and the Father, and kept, and that, that point is going to be important for us for what we're going to be looking at this evening, kept for Jesus Christ. Jude goes on in this letter, and again, it's just one chapter, but he goes on, uh, and particularly in verse 3, he tells us that he was eager to write about our common salvation. So Jude wanted to write a letter to those that he's writing to, encouraging them. Um, it's almost as though Jude would sort of like to follow up with what Paul had written in Romans. Um, he wanted to follow up with what we see throughout the New Testament that encourages people about what the gospel is and to speak about our salvation. And, and again, it's, I think it's important for us to recognize the need for us to be reminded of the gospel. Sometimes we can find the gospel to sort of be like old hat, that sort of elementary Christianity type of things. Uh, but yet God emphasizes it over and over and over again in the New Testament writings. And so Jude, that's what he wants to write about. But because of the situation that was facing the church in the first century, um, he says in verse 3, he finds it necessary to write appealing to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so Jude recognizes, as Peter does in 2 Peter, and particularly chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 of 2 Peter, that there is a, a problem in the church, a problem facing the church. And he speaks about how there are going to be, in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed. And he begins to talk about false teaching, just as we saw with 2 Peter, saying that there were those who secretly bring in destructive heresies. They appear to be a part of God's church, but yet they bring about destruction in the teachings that they bring about. And so, um, as Peter and Jude describe some very strong words for these false teachers, describing things like being kept in gloomy darkness, being kept in change, being reserved unto the day of judgment, uh, and and focusing on the fact that God is going to judge 
false teachers, and false teachers, as they lead other people into that destruction, there is a real threat that false teaching can come in, corrupt the church so that it no longer stands as a gospel witness. And so Jude brings these strong exhortations, these strong admonitions to the church. And as we come to the end of the book of Jude, he calls upon them to preserve. He calls upon them to build themselves up in the most holy faith. We see this in verse 20. In verse 21, to keep themselves in the love of God, uh, to wait for God's mercy, to show mercy to others, uh, and then seeking to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And so as he gives a warning and a call to action, the, that sort of counterbalance can naturally create some concerns among those who are reading his book, particularly concerns as we see the very strong language that he uses about false teachers. Is it possible that someone who has come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who has trusted in him, is it possible for them to lose that salvation? And that question, particularly when we see the very stark language that both Peter and Jude use, can become a real concern. And actually, as you look at the history of the interpretation of Scripture over the years, people have debated very intensely some of the passages that we see, both in Second Peter, particularly in the book of Hebrews. There are warning passages in the book of Hebrews that warn people about falling away from the faith. Uh, particularly those who have tasted of the Holy Spirit and, and have, have been able to benefit from the church's ministry, and yet if they were to turn back, they're trampling under their feet the blood of Christ. And, and so there, there's a, been a concern that's risen, and even to this day there are people that will teach that you can lose your salvation. Then we come to the end of the book of Jude, and that's where we're going to be looking today in verses 24 and verse 25. And it's interesting that this, these last two verses of the book of Jude are given as what's often labeled a doxology. It's a prayer. Um, it's a prayer particularly of praise. Doxology means to give glory to someone. And what we find Jude bringing to the forefront in this doxology is that there is confidence in God's salvation. And so we just have two verses here this evening, uh, and, uh, and you think, oh, two verses, it shouldn't be too long. Well, this is me we're talking about here. Um, there's, there's a lot of richness in these verses, and there's a lot of things that we find. So what I'd like us to do is there are uh, three things that Jude encourages us with to find confidence in God's um, Salvation. Three reasons why we can find confidence in God's salvation. And then a final application. What do we do with that? Now that we have confidence in God's salvation, how should we respond? So look with me. Jude chapter, or Jude, I keep saying chapter. There's no chapter. One chapter. Jude 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 
So I want us to begin by seeing that we can find confidence in God's salvation because he is able. What we find Jude pointing out at the very beginning of here is he is lifting a prayer to someone who is able. And of course, we know that that someone is God the Father. Now to him who is able. He grounds the hope for confidence that we have in God's salvation in the very character and nature of God himself. Our hope for salvation is always placed in God's ability to both do what he said he's going to do and his right to do what he says he's going to do. We can speak about that regarding his power or his omnipotence and his authority or his sovereignty. Those two things put together give us great confidence that God will perform his work of salvation. Now, it says that God is able. What does that mean? Well, it speaks, I think, first of all, of his sovereignty or his authority or his right as creator and king of the universe. God has the absolute right to do with what he has created how he desires. He has that right. There's no one who can look to him and stay his hand or ask him, what are you doing? The prophets speak of it in that way. And the idea there is that God doesn't report to anyone. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. He doesn't have to explain himself to anyone. He doesn't have anyone from whom he has to go to seek permission. Because he is the sovereign God who is invested, invested with all authority, he can do what he pleases. In the heavens and in the earth and under the earth, he accomplishes all his will because he has the right to do so as as creator and king of the universe. But not only does he have the right to do it, he also has the power to do it. And those two things, right and power, authority and strength, sovereignty and omnipotence, they go together to create this idea of his ability. The omnipotence of God speaks of the unrivaled power he has to accomplish what he pleases. Not only does he have the right to do what he wants to, he also has the strength to do what he wants to. Not only from the perspective of permission and authorization, but also from the perspective that there is no one who can rival him. There is no one who can go toe-to-toe with him. That's why... In many respects, in Psalm 2, we see God laughing at the disdain that the world is giving to him in Psalm 2. They're saying, we're going to cast off his bonds. We're going, to, we're going to cast him away. We're not going to follow the Lord's way. We're going to live autonomous of him. And God is up in heaven laughing, knowing that he's going to hold them in derision. Why? Because these puny men have no power at all in comparison to him. His power is unrivaled. And so when we understand these two things, God's sovereignty and his omnipotence, what we find then is that God is absolutely free to do what he pleases according to his plan. In fact, he is the most free being in existence. He has no limitations apart from, from the attributes of his character. Now, what that means and how that builds confidence is that he is, as 
as Jude says, he is what? Able. Those two things brought together, the fact that he is unlimited in power and unlimited in authority, means that when he says he's going to do something, he will do it. He is absolutely free to do according to his character. And think about his character. He is a God who is fully good. He is a God who only speaks truth. He'll never lie to us. And he is a God who is faithful in all things. So all of that stands behind what Jude is saying when he says that he's praying to the one who is able Now, there's another side of this coin when we think of the sovereignty and power and the ability of God to accomplish salvation. If there is full hope in him to bring about salvation, then that means that there is no hope in any other means to bring about that salvation. He is able. He alone is able. This means that there is no other God who can save, but the Lord our God. This also means that we cannot save ourselves. In fact, there's a reality that we see from every religion on the face of this planet, every single one, besides biblical Christianity, it puts the requirement for salvation on you. You have to keep a set of seven rules. You have to make sure that your good works outweigh your bad. You have to make sure that you conform to an ethical or a moral standard throughout your life. And over and over again, what every other religion and even some that claim the name of Christ will do is they will put the onus on you to save yourself. And here's the problem. Jude does not say that we pray to ourselves or look to ourselves for the ability within ourselves. There is only one who is able, and that is our God. He is able, and we are not able to save ourselves. So the hope that Jude is pointing to is a hope that is placed outside of ourselves. Now, this is a true hope because you all know your own limitations. You all know that you can't meet the standard. You all know that you fall short of the glory of God, which will come in clearly here in a few moments. You all know that if it was up to you to save yourself, there's no hope. But there is hope in a God who is able. This teaching, this hope, is what Judas pointing to his readers, particularly those who he's warning. This false teaching that comes in, that creeps in unaware, it takes people to the point where they are looking to themselves. In fact, he describes that that in verse 8, these false teachers are relying not on the Lord, but they're relying on their dreams. He says that they're the ones who are rejecting authority. They're casting off a dependence upon God, depending on their own thought process and rejecting the authority of God Almighty. And that does not bring hope. That brings condemnation. So how can we have hope? Look to the God who 
is able. This brings about a sure foundation. Paul speaks of it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is what? Able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That which had been entrusted to Paul was the gospel. And so he's recognizing that God has the ability to keep him, to guard him until that day, until he's fully completed that work of the gospel. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How is he going to do this? By the power that enables him or makes him able even to subject all things to himself. Do you, do you see how both of those things, authority and power, are combined to enable or provide the ability to Christ to be able to save? And we see particularly how this was the hope of God's people from the very get-go. He refers in Romans, Paul refers in Romans chapter 4 to Abraham. We know, we know the passage well. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That faith was the very thing that Abraham depended on. Not faith in himself. Particularly, he's referring to the fact that Abraham was bringing a sacrifice. His faith wasn't in the sacrifice or the activity of the sacrifice. Rather, his faith was in the character and nature of God who made a promise that there would be a seed from Isaac. And so, even as God asked Abraham to kill Isaac, Abraham still believed God's authority and power to raise Isaac from the dead. And so Paul comments, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was what? Able to do what he had promised. Now, I think what's helpful to recognize here, when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, this is after he had been called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees. This is after he had, quote-unquote, had a conversion experience. But yet it was through this point that he grew strong in his faith. And there's an encouragement here for us, I think, that we can find our dependence on this hope we have in God's ability is something that progressively gets stronger throughout our lives. I think sometimes we can look and we can see the things that people are facing around us. We can read the stories of saints of, of, the old, of old that they had faced such difficulties and, and they seem to have such sterling faith and we can become discouraged. But here's even Abraham who very early on in his marriage to Sarah made some Terrible choices. But yet through that all, he grew in his faith and he became fully convinced that God was able to do what he 
has promised. Really, our confidence, our hope in faith is a, a fundamental soul deep, soul, deep soul conviction that God will keep his promise. That God has promised to save all those who trust in Christ. And he is able to save all those who trust in Christ. So the first thing we see is we find confidence in God's salvation because he is able. But that's not it. And what I appreciate about what Jude does here is he speaks of what it is that God is able to do. And we can often speak of that sort of nebulously. Well, God's going to save me. God's going to take me into heaven. We, we can think of it from that perspective. But Jude has a vision of God's work in salvation that is wider than just this focus on being freed from death and freed from the consequences of our sins. Rather, we find confidence in God's salvation because He, God, transforms us. We can find confidence in God's salvation because He transforms us. This is what He's doing. Notice what He says. God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Jude speaks of how God is able to accomplish this sure salvation or what he does. And there's, there's three definite things that we see that God is doing. The first is that we will not stumble. Here I think we're able to see what it means for God to keep us in his hand. Again, Jesus says in John 10, 29, My Father who has given me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So God is able to keep us in his hand. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be kept in the hand of God? Now, this is especially important considering the admonition Jude has given. What was some of the teaching that the, these false teachers were saying, go ahead and leave it up, live it up. The grace of God gives you license to sin. The grace of God is going to cover um, all of your sinful activities, and so live it up. That was a common teaching. In fact, Peter even hints at the fact that these false teachers are denying that Jesus is coming back. So still live it up. He's not going to come back. Things have continued as they always have been. There's no consequence for sin. But Jude points about the fact that God keeps us from some stumbling for the purpose of presenting us, and what's the word he used there? Blameless or faultless. He challenges his hearers to keep themselves in the love of God. This is actually earlier on in verse 20. But you, beloved, build your, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And then we keep ourselves in the love of God. What does it mean to stay in the love of God? It means to live a life of holiness. God's gracious work of keeping his people from stumbling is so that they would live lives that are progressively less and less infected by sin. He keeps us from stumbling. The word stumble that's used here it means to trip up or to experience disaster or to be lost. Our hope from this reality is God's ability to keep 
those who are genuinely saved. How do we know that that's the case? Because we do not stumble. Now, Jude isn't referring to the fact that we might slip up occasionally in sin. That absolutely happens. In fact, John tells us that if anyone says he's without sin, he lies and deceives himself. Sin is something that we're going to struggle with the entirety of our time here on earth. But that, that going into sin never brings us to a point where we have now essentially destroyed ourselves before the Lord. We've never fallen back into wholesale giving over to that which brings about the destruction of the wicked. And so I think what this focus of Jude, that God keeps us from stumbling, it points to something that is, I think, sometimes neglected in our understanding of what it means to be secure in our salvation. Particularly, there's a term that's often used we call eternal security. And we talk about that we believe that believers have eternal security. Or they're eternally secure in the salvation that God gives them. But I think sometimes, and, and I think sometimes this is not necessarily meant by people who use that term, but sometimes the, the, the thought process is, well, if I'm eternally secure, if, I've, if I'm once saved, always saved, well, then that means that I can go and live my life however I want to. And I've just got that ticket to heaven in my back pocket. And Jude is saying here, no, if you're truly one of the ones who God is able to save, don't you think he's able to keep you from sin as well? God's ability to save is not just simply concerned with our eternal state, but it is concerned with saving us from sin now. That's why Paul in Romans 6, as we saw when we saw those baptisms several weeks ago, Paul says that we are dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. So John puts it this way, that those who go out from among us show by that action, by their stumbling, that they were never truly of us. Their stumbling is an indication not that they have had salvation and lost it, but an indication that they never had that salvation because is not God able to keep his people from stumbling, from destruction, from being lost? Paul puts it this way in a very well-known verse, Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The emphasis of Paul here is that there is a, there is a, a definite time when God began the work and there's a definite time when God will end the work among those whom he's saving. But in between, there's a progressive move towards that final end. And so we recognize, first of all, that God transforms us by keeping us from stumbling. But the second thing we see about this transformation is that we will be accepted before God's glory. Notice what he says here. He keeps us from stumbling, so that is a matter of the life now. But then he does this so that he can present us blameless before the presence of his glory. We are presented before God's 
presence, particularly the presence of his glory. The term present here could be translated established or caused to stand. It can also have the idea of validating the truthfulness of something. In fact, the New American Standard translates this passage, God will make you stand before the presence of his glory. The implication is clear that there will come a time for all those whom God is able to save, all those whom he's kept from stumbling in this life, that they will at the last day stand before the glory of God. They will be established before him and be accepted. See, there are only two options before the glory of God. You are either accepted before him or you you are rejected. And he says to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And Jude's point and and the message that he's encouraging the believers with is that if you're trusting in this God who is able, who is changing you and keeping you from sin, keeping you from stumbling, that one day you will stand before God arrayed in all his glory and be accepted. Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned. And what is sin? Falling short of what? The glory of God. And so... The reality of what God's salvation does is it takes those who constantly fall short, who constantly have no right to stand before him, and he creates it so that we can stand before him. He establishes us so that we would stand before the presence of his glory. The reality is that everyone, and here's the reality, everyone made in God's image will one day stand before him. Everyone will stand before the holy and righteous God, but only those whom God is saving, only those whom he is able to save, only those who have trusted in Christ and have that confidence in him, those are the only ones who will be accepted before his glory. Everyone else on the last day will be cast into the lake of fire. And again, We have to remind ourselves that we stand before him in all of his glory, not because of what we have done, but because, and it's not because we're able, but because he is able to make us stand before him. It is his ability that establishes us before his glory. And the final thing, the third thing we see about what God's salvation does is it provides eternal joy. We will stand before his presence with great joy. You know, I know that we oftentimes will talk about um, the hope that we have in heaven beyond. That there is coming a day where we will not have to deal with the difficulties of this life. And, And oftentimes our joy in those moments, I think, can sometimes be misplaced. Yes, it's a wonderful thing that there will be no pain and that every tear will be wiped away. Yes, it is a joyous thing that we will be reunited with those who died before us in Christ. Yes, it is a joyous thing to speak of the eternal provision of God that will never fail to satisfy us. All of those things are wonderful, but the true joy of eternity before the Lord is found in the fact that we stand justified in him. That we are able to stand before this great God. And that 
gives us great joy. And not only does it give us great joy, but there's a two-way joy here because this great joy, I believe, also refers to the joy that God has. God will rejoice when His children come home. He is able to look before Him and as He looks and sees what He's done in saving a daughter or a son of His in Christ, He rejoices in that moment. He wants to be with his children. So we've seen that we can find confidence in God's salvation because he's able. We can find confidence in God's salvation because he transforms us. And then finally we see the means by which he does all of this. And that is that we can find confidence in God's salvation because of Christ's work. It's almost as though Jude is caught up in the glory of what he's saying here. And as, he, as this is a prayer to him, and then he describes who God is, the one who is able to keep us from falling or stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then it's like he jumps into praise now. It's almost like he's there. It's almost like he's at that moment where he's standing before the Father. And he says, to the only God, our Savior. And then he says, through, and there's only one name that is ever placed there, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The reason for such joy and the reason for such confidence that we can have in the ability of God to save his people is because he has determined to save his people through his only begotten son. Through Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of the plan of God's salvation. It is because Christ has accomplished our salvation that we are certain and have great hope. God shows his ability to both be a God who is patient and long-suffering and, and abundant in steadfast love forgiving over and over again. But yet he also shows that he's a God who in no wise clears the guilty and visits iniquity on those who commit iniquity. How can those two things be? How can God be a God of forgiveness and also a God of wrath? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He says that he is, there's that word again, able to save to the uttermost. Those, this is speaking of Christ, those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is able to save to the uttermost at all times. That's the idea of uttermost. Because those come through him. And that's what Jude is pointing to here. Our salvation can only come through the work of Jesus Christ. It is a sure salvation for those who come to him. That that salvation to the uttermost endures for all eternity. 
so that God will never fail to keep those in his hand whom he saved. That at every time in our life, no matter what we're facing, no matter what may come around the corner, no matter what may be 10 years or 20 years down the road, God still saves all those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can, be, we can realize that we will be kept until the end. Remember I said that that word was going to come important, become in. Uh, important again because again this is what Jude begins the book with Jude chapter 1 Jude or Jude verse 1 Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ and so this is Christ is the basis of our stand how can we stand before the presence of his glory because we're in Christ because Christ possesses all the glory of the Father. In fact, the scriptures tell us that for us to be rejected by the Father, it would mean for the Father to reject eternally his Son. And here's the wonderful truth. He cannot deny himself. And so Paul makes this confident proclamation in 2 Corinthians 4, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us where? Into his presence. That's the wonderful hope of this great salvation. So we've been able to see three reasons why we can find confidence. We find confidence because God is able. We find confidence because he is able to transform us. And we find confidence because he transforms us through Jesus Christ. So now what's the application? Confidence in God's salvation produces worship. In fact, in many ways, this was how Jude began all this. Now to him, he's speaking a prayer of praise. The final result of God's ability to save is that we would become worshipers. Worshipers to God through Jesus Christ. And the content of our worship is clear. God receives all glory, all majesty, all dominion and authority. Notice those two things, dominion, sovereignty, authority, right, power. And this power that God has is a power and a glory and a majesty that he had, first of all, before all time. You realize before there was anything that existed, God's glory was there. And then he says, and now, that despite the raging of the nations and their fighting against God and against his son, it doesn't change the objective truth that God possesses all glory. And even though we may not be able to see that at times because of the significance of the of the turmoil in our world, even in our own lives. Now, God has all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And then the wonderful hope is that he will continue to possess that forever. So that when we speak of God being able to save, he will never lose that ability. This world will be gone 
it will be crushed up like a piece of paper and thrown into a, we- uh, into a wastebasket. And God will still have that great glory. And guess what we get to do in Christ? Stand before him in that glory. So, after a book that warns against false teaching, warns against the dangers of false teaching, Jude encourages us with a confidence we can have in God's salvation and then calls us to live for the only one who has eternal glory, to worship him and to give unto him all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Take it and apply it to our lives. Encourage us, challenge us. We thank you that you are such a good God. And we thank you that you are able to keep us from stumbling, to present us faultless before your, the presence of your glory with great joy. May we live that reality in all things. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.